Hello and welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Losses weekly podcast with Colin Lambert and myself, Galen Stops, where we discuss all the, the latest and greatest news from the markets over the past week. Um, actually, I think this week we're going to start with, we've had some feedback on comments that were made from previous podcasts. Um, I've, I've got some points that were brought up to me, but Colin, I know you had a couple that you wanted to, to bring up on your side. Yeah, specifically to last week's podcast, our um, LSEG Refinitiv Special, as it's now known in the uh, Aesosphere. We were discussing the sort, you know, the, the benefits of the one-stop shop, and I think you know your your article went into it quite well as well on Monday in terms of like you know the, these benefits and the fact that everyone's chasing this sort of dream. What was quite interesting to me was I got a few people got in touch with me and said, well, actually, who wants a one-stop shop? And they kind of likened it to the 90s when Reuters launched Matching. And all of a sudden, they were going, well, hang on a minute. This means Reuters has a huge chunk of our market infrastructure. We want an alternative. And they created EBS. And there's a similar sort of viewpoint going around at the moment around, well, yes, it's nice that you can do everything in one place, but that puts you very much in the um, cockpit of that one provider. And you're at their behest a little bit. So, yeah, the the... The pushback wasn't so much against the deal. Well, I want to stress that. most I think just about everyone I've spoken to thinks it's a good deal for Affinitiv and potentially yeah. for LSE. But, yeah, there was just this thing about this whole concept of the one-stop shop that, you know, CME, you know, Deutsche Börse before they were uh, maybe thwarted here, um, and LSE now are, are, are chasing, whether their customers actually want that, which I think is quite an interesting point. Cause, I mean, I, in the world of connectivity that we have, yes, connectivity can be – complex and onerous but actually if you've got most of your core infrastructure connected up do you really need to worry about changing it to one place um you know everybody wants redundancy the argument i'm getting is everyone wants redundancy and to keep a second platform going um you've got to uh, you've, you've got to support that platform how, how well does this go I'm, I'm i'm a little bit leery of that argument to be honest because i think well why don't you just have two or three one-stop shops but, so so that's, that's what I was going to say. So I, I had a conversation with someone at one of the bigger kind of platforms you know, owned by an exchange group now. And, and I was talking to them about, for the 20th anniversary edition that you and I are working on right now, we were talking about trends and sort of the, the, the growth of platforms. And now they kind of, they see it consolidating. The way they put it was, um, you know, they, they don't know what the final number will be, but they said, you know, it's going to be more than two Probably not more than five was their view. Does that sound about right yeah. to you? I mean, it does in terms of owners, because there are. I know we have listeners that will definitely be jumping on my back for this, and they do every time I mention consolidation. But I think it's we're looking at consolidation of ownership, because what is always points out to me is that yes, these you talk about platform consolidation, but there's more channels and more liquidity pools than ever before. Um, because every platform offers 20 different liquidity pools, and you know, now the now the owners, the exchange groups are now owning sort of you know multiple li- liquidity pool providers. But yeah, I, I kind of look at it and think there'll be three or four. And, and the interesting point on that is when you talk about the the owners changing, not the actual platforms. It, it was pointed out to me recently that you know all the the platforms that have generally been bought. I mean, thus far there haven't really been any significant changes to them beyond no. the the rebranding. You know. Fast match becomes Euronext FX. You know, GTX becomes the catchy named 360T GTX, 
Um, yes. <laughs> but but in terms of like, you know all the the assets, whether it's Hotspot or the other platforms I mentioned, generally they've been bought by these exchange groups and kind of left alone. Now people did oh. also comment that they don't necessarily expect that's going to be the case always. For example, you know they said EBS might get um, you know replatformed eventually, potentially by CME. But they yeah. kind of did make the point that that by and large. Um, you know, most of the platforms that, that have been bought, the OTCFX ones, they've kind of been bought and, and maintained the way they are rather than trying to dramatically change anything. Yeah, because I think they wanted the, the exchanges wanted an OTC platform. They realized yeah. that FX was not going to an exchange, was not going to be listed, so they want an OTC platform. So you buy an OTC platform. If you do that, you buy one that's generally successful already. Um, I don't think any of them bought, you know, like a, a, a project as such. They bought, you know, yeah. live kicking platforms, um, and therefore you do, you know, your changes are fairly cosmetic and around the edges, and you know, in your plumbing and wiring. Um, I I would be surprised if they make dramatic changes to any of these platforms for the next three or five years, beyond what would normally happen at an OTC platform, you know, rejuvenating its technology. So yeah, I, I, that doesn't surprise me at all. I have to say, um, there. I mean, you could. I mean, this week's been very different, but you could also sort of look at it. I mean, something struck me yesterday when I was writing the story up that um, LSE, last week you said to me, um, can transactional volumes, et cetera, pay for the cost of um, LSE's debt, service LSE's debt? Um, well, in the good news for LSE was Reuters reported its quietest month – oh, sorry, done it again, <laughs> Refinitiv. Refinitiv reported its quietest month since it started reporting data as Thomson Reuters in 2009 – when it comes to spot last month, is it yeah. 80 yards a day? It's, it's never done that low at any time in the previous 10 years. So there, there's a nice bit of good news for them coming into it. I should point no, out, actually, that um, they, their, their numbers actually were in line with everyone else's and actually better than a couple um, that went down. CME and EBS were down a little bit more. But, um, yeah, it's why would you change something that works? <laughs> no, it, it is true, but... Um... I mean, we've I, I've spoken to someone about this recently, and they were kind of saying that, um, you know, they're making the point though that the exchanges really aren't buying these platforms necessarily for their transactional volume. Um, no, it, it, it's it's about kind of their broader portfolio of what they can offer. And the clients, they've, 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 these these platforms have got a lot of clients that are not really yeah. using the exchange environment unless they, you know, do have a, a, a listed business, which a lot of them don't anymore. So, yeah. So, yes, I think that's fair. I think that's a fair call. What and, will people and, and abusing you on... about this week? <laughs> um, well, one thing that I was uh, – it wasn't abuse, but, but, but we had someone who listened to um, our – who's read our articles and listened to our podcast on the, the city FXPB, you know, giving the non-banks – um, yeah. notice there and so in our in our article on the podcast we outlined a few different um, issues and kind of theories about why the decision was made um, a lot of comments from a lot of people I've spoken to have said that it was kind of a decision that came from up on high in the risk team um, who decided that they didn't want the risk of these firms on, on the kind of the book so to speak uh, and they were willing yep. to lose revenue to kind of get it off now, one person that I spoke to had a very different um, take on it, and their take was that the decision has, yes, come on high,
but really the decision was made by competition, um, which is they don't want – they're basically sacrificing the revenue on the FXPB side to give the execution desk a boost. Um, and mm. let me kind of ex- explain a little bit further. So, I mean, in, in over kind of previous years, I have talked to various uh, non-bank uh, LPs about the fact that, you know, in, in many cases they compete with the banks – and yet they are beholden to the banks via FXPB. The banks effectively control the taps that, that would let them trade. And in the past, they were, they, the response generally was always, you know, you know, we have a great relationship with our FXPBs. I don't really think they'd, you know, kick us off just because of that. There's Chinese walls between, you know, the execution and the FXPB. You know, they have different P&L lines. The, the FXPB desk isn't going to just kick off a bunch of people who are making revenue from it just because it might help someone else in the bank that they don't necessarily work directly with or certainly don't work for. Um, and this person yep. was saying, yes, but both of those, both those P&L lines, both those reporting lines lead further up the bank, and you get high enough and there's someone who's looking over both sides of this Chinese wall. Um, and, they, yeah. and their theory was that perhaps this person has said, you know what, I don't want to be helping someone over here access markets that they're then going to compete with me over there. Let's shut it off. Mm. I have a few problems with that theory. This was just just speculation from a listener, I should emphasize. Yes. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. But I have a few problems with that theory. And I love the fact that you have, you know, structured conversations with people. I just get abuse. It's great. Um, Welcome to the world of the dealer. I would say, firstly, I used to look at this problem and say, well, they are in competition, but then it goes up the bank. and, And in this current environment, a senior banker looks in and goes, okay, I've got guaranteed fees here, or I've got risk on my books here from traders trying to make money. Which one am I going to go for? Generally speaking, a banker will go for the guaranteed fees. Um, so I think maybe that's not – I mean, it might be part of the decision, but in this day and age, I'm not convinced. Although as risk managers you know, in the dealing desks change how they handle the risk, as in yeah, there is more – sort of um, transient flow, transient risk holding. The risk warehousing is in seconds rather than hours where it used to be. Maybe they're acting more like non-bank market makers, which we've discussed for a few years now. Yeah, um, yeah. And so maybe they're saying, well, actually, that is, there is more direct competition than there used to be. There might be something in that. I'm, I'm not convinced. Um, I still think it comes down to the cost of the technology they have to keep on um, investing in to actually be able to maintain a good service for these customers. These, the HFTs, or non-bank market makers, sorry, are not a risk to the financial system. I honestly believe that. But they are a risk to the technology in terms of the fact that, you know, particularly what was happening this week, you're going to get huge bursts of trade through. And the cost of monitoring those risks in the current regulatory environment just goes up. What does lend support to your conversance theory, I guess, is a question I've been wondering for a little while, and I haven't actually asked it yet, but if City was really worried about this, you know, the cost of these things, of, of, running, of running these com- these customers, why did it not first just turn and say, okay, PB's now here, 15 bucks, and see what happens? Because otherwise, um, I mean, they've turned and said, no, you're done, but they didn't actually go that middle route of, unless they had conversations with a firm saying, look, we've worked out the only way we can um, handle your business, and effectively is 15 bucks or whatever, but then these firms said they were surprised by the move. So they didn't have those conversations. So, 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 me. Well, I spoke to one, I did speak to one firm that wasn't, they weren't in the latest, the last 
batch. Um, but yeah. they that they they said to me that they went in and they had a meeting with City, and then they didn't get they didn't get given notice in that meeting. But the very next day after that meeting, they started prepping to leave City. <laughs> Yeah, okay, fair enough. Let's notice. <laughs> yeah. So they, they didn't tell me the specifics of what got said in that meeting, but it obviously did yeah. not go well. Um, and so I don't know whether it was, um, you know, it was a price thing or, um, you yeah. know, we want to have these pre-trade risk tools, which is going to introduce this latency or or what it was. But but basically they said that they saw the writing on the wall as soon as they had yeah. that meeting. When they, when they went in, they weren't asked to sit down or offer a tea or a coffee. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the biscuit, the biscuits weren't on the meeting table. That's always the sure sign. <laughs> oh, or, or, or you reach for one, you're told no, those are for clients. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there's plenty of ways of doing this. <laughs> I mean, I think the, the, I, the good news for us from all this stuff, actually, and we'll, we'll, we'll do, the, we'll actually mention this now to listeners because. Um, we're only just over a month away from Forex Network Chicago, so our Chicago conferences this year got a lot of very, very hot topics to discuss, isn't it? Including, yeah. you know, like the the sort of the Battle of the Titans panel, into, which is going to be looking at the um, you know the benefits or otherwise of a one-stop shop. And I notice we've got a couple of speakers who aren't one-stop shops, so that should make it very spicy. Um, yeah. And we've got the PB panel as well, which um, I would imagine could create quite a heated debate for you. Yeah, because I mean we've got we've got bank we've got non-bank market maker we've got uh, clearinghouse we've got kind of um, uh, people who are touting alternative credit models. So um, I think that well, hopefully people won't be gentle in their their criticisms or voicing their opinions. And uh, knowing Chicago, they're normally not. So I'm looking forward to, <laughs> to that say. panel. Yes, yeah, yeah. You can get details of the uh, conference on our website. And register for it uh, now, obviously. Um, so let's move on. Uh, feedback, just to remind everyone, is always welcome. It comes in the form of, why are you such an idiot, as, some, as it does to me sometimes. That's absolutely fine. Yeah. No one says no that one does to me. In fact, fact, no. fact, most of the complaining feedback I get is about you. Yeah, that's fine. I had to remind someone this week that I'm not responsible for what you say, and that if they have an issue with what you say, you should take it up with Colin directly. <laughs> And believe me, plenty of people do. There's nothing new there. Uh, keep your friends close and your enemies even closer. There you go. Um, anyway, moving on from the feedback, and we'll say we do genuinely welcome all feedback. Um, I've got a thick skin. Um, let's, it's actually been a fairly interesting week this week in markets. <laughs> a shock horror. Yeah, it has. I actually had, yeah, I I had a coffee when, with when someone yesterday. When was the last yesterday. time we said that? Well, exactly, yeah. Although I had a coffee with someone yesterday, in a, a senior figure in the dealing space, and they went, yeah, you know what, it always happens in July and August, doesn't it? Everyone thinks it's quiet in Northern Hemisphere summer. Right. And we sat there and listed about seven events that happened in the Northern Hemisphere summer over the last sort yeah. of decade and a half. So this week was, um, well, I guess this week was China, although I guess you could argue that it started with, in the U.S. on Friday with the new tariffs on the... Uh, on China from the Trump administration, it certainly triggered an interesting response. I mean, genuinely, people were surprised by where the PBOC set dollar CNY midpoint on Monday, and that I think it was about a one and a half percent move lower. That's a decent enough move, you know. CNH above seven for the first time, I think, 
since you know they liberalised like the liberalisation regime. Um, it's actually been quite a fun time to be in Asia watching this stuff go on. What's oh, been yeah. the sort of response to it in the US? Um, well, I mean, the, the Trump administration's response, literal response, was to label China as a currency manipulator. Which, yes. Which, to be honest, is somewhat ironic, considering they've been propping up the currency for so long. Well, like, yeah, I mean, they, um, actually... They have been manipulating it, but they've been manipulating it, like, to make it stronger, right? For, yeah. for a while now. Um, well, it's also it's also called a managed float. It's not a free-floating currency, so of course it's actually going to be manipulated, <laughs> you know, look at it. It's the language itself. It actually says it's a managed float. That tells you they set the they set the midpoint every day. It, it is interesting. I think a lot of people have been wrong-footed by the ups and downs on this. I remember. I can't even remember when it was. I think it was you know a month, a couple of months ago. Um, and I was at a briefing with a delegation of, of economists from the Asia-Pacific region, very senior people in their field. One assumes kind of some of them fairly, you know, some of them were from mainland China, and I, you know, yeah. know them outside this, and they kind of um, have some, some decent connections and, and insight there. And they they very much felt like the trade negotiations were kind of coming to a conclusion and were close to being wrapped up, and that you know, certain concessions would be made and Donald Trump's belly would be rubbed and then everyone would kind of go home and, and get on with things again. So so I think the deterioration in this latest move has caught quite a few people by surprise, actually. Maybe not kind of in the last week by surprise, but I don't think we're now where people expected to be six to eight weeks ago. No. I, it was actually, actually funny. I mean, yeah. Cool. No, it's interesting because actually in our... Our London conference earlier this year, you know, we had a, a panel session on the kind of volatility in the market. We wrote a piece on it about, um, you know, has FX become divorced from geopolitics? And, and there were kind of a few different views on this, but the suggestion certainly from some of the people on there, there was a lot of talk of China, uh, and the, the view from some people on there was that, that some of the, the mechanisms were broken so that volatility hadn't fed through to FX yet but that ultimately that would happen if things continue the way they are. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, I, I won't mention the bank by name. Who, their uh, strategy team dropped an email in my box literally one hour before it happened saying dollar CNH is not going through seven. Um, oops, <laughs> nothing like a good bit of time in there. Um, <laughs> that should lead to another round of abuse from them anyway. Yeah, I think with the markets, this is the problem when you do get the heavily automated markets. I, was out, I, I, I have an interesting conversation with someone yesterday, and they, they were saying, look, you know, it's great. The volatility has really been good this week. Volumes have been through the roof. Um, and it's around the globe. It's not just been a London-based thing. You know, volumes have been busy over the 24 hours. Um, they were hitting sort of new peaks in terms of how much volume they're handling. Um, and they hoped it carried on. Well, obviously, they hope it carries on because they're in the volume game. But I think this will be an interesting test because if things just settle down and we go back to another three months of absolutely nothing happening in markets of any note, even though the, this trade war and currency war thing is going to just roll on, then that kind of does illustrate that the new market structure is we're going to get long periods of boredom, brief periods of intense excitement, and people are not going to be that willing to hold on to risk for too long. 
um, if it settles down, it'll be an interesting sort of case study in how the modern foreign exchange market works because this is not going away. To your point, this is not going away. I can't see how it gets better. Is China manipulating? No, I think China was sending a message, frankly, to the US administration. You know, so, so we, we have our own weapons here as well. So, so someone at our London conference actually made a very present comment um, where they were they were said that there's been a real effort to actually kill volatility yeah. as the talks between U.S. and China were kind of looking to, to end in the deal. But they said that they predicted that once uh, the talks had been concluded, kind of one way or the other, volatility would then catch up with the market while no one feels beholden to try and keep volatility low. Um, and that's kind yeah. of pretty much exactly what we've seen. Yeah, I mean, I think that's maybe overthinking it. I mean, I was obviously at the conference, but I kind of look at it and think what's actually happening is a few traders have woken up and said, okay, everybody, look, this is not looking good. We need to, you know, risk on, risk off, whatever, whichever you want to look at it. We're hitting those currencies pretty hard. And the algos have just woken up because the algos respond to price moves. So the more selling and buying you get, the more exaggerated the move's going to be, I think. Um, you know, the basics of economics, isn't it? So I kind of think it's a market structure. These, these issues have been here for a long while. Nothing's really changed here. You know, Trump is being more aggressive with China. China's going to hit back in certain fashions. Now, look at the recent Chinese data, and I can't believe we're doing currency strategies this week. What was it, stock analysts last week? Currency strategies this week? <laughs> look, at the recent, look at the recent Chinese data. It hasn't been that great. It has shown us slowing down. Um, and when, you're, when your economy starts to underperform expectations, what normally happens to your currency? Oh, it goes down. What's happened? They've managed to float lower. I, I wonder if, if there's an element of everyone getting very excited about the seven number because it's a nice round number. Well, you know, that's a good old favorite foreign exchange market. It's going back decades. Why is this number important? Because it's got two noughts on the end. <laughs> it's not necessarily – it may not necessarily be a big thing. I mean, you, know, you, could, you could definitely ask the uh, incumbent – in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, how's your currency war going so far? Because they're losing it horribly because the only currency that's really gone up apart from the yen is the dollar. Yeah. And don't even get me started on, on background buying of dollar yen by Japanese names. Now, that will take us back 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wonder also this week, because we, we saw in Asian time zone as well, there was a surprise rate cut by the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. Now, you look at it and think New Zealand what is it, the eighth, ninth biggest traded currency in the world, about 1% of the market as part of the global economy. You know, this is with all due disrespect to my New Zealand um, uh, neighbours. But, you know, is it a massive part of the global economy? No, it's not. But it showed how nervous the markets are when the Reserve Bank of New Zealand cut by more than expected. There was an immediate reaction, lower, in the Kiwi and the, and the Aussie. But then the uh, Reserve Bank governor started talking about negative interest rates, which for a a currency that has been a carry trade for I don't know how long, negative interest rates is quite, is, is quite something. Um, and uh, we saw a 150-point drop in the Kiwi and 100-point-plus drop in the Aussie. I, mean, I would point out that this morning they're both back to where they started before that rate cut. I think, actually, I think the Kiwi's a little bit lower. But that triggered off quite a lot of volatility as well. And I think that's what's happened with – that's what China has started here. It suddenly brought home to everyone – that actually this is a really uncertain world and the outlook's not that great. And it's for some reason, it's like someone's just turned the light on. These issues have been here for a long while, but all of a sudden in one week we've had two or three events. You know, Reserve Bank of India cut by more than expected. I think Bank of Israel did something. 
in emerging markets where people have been looking, there's, there's some interesting moves taking place. And it's like a light's gone on. People suddenly went, oh, there's volatility. There's risks. And, and Colin, and do you know what you do in an uncertain, uh, volatile environment? Well, yeah. You buy, you buy Bitcoin, Colin. You buy Bitcoin. <laughs> and indeed they did. <laughs> <laughs> Bitcoin, when this thing, when this thing, you know, from Monday was it? I think it was up fifteen hundred bucks to eleven. It, it touched yeah. tw- twelve thousand. So, so, so Friday it was Friday it was was it was Friday the second. So it went. I went up from kind of ten eleven at the end of last week to mm. uh, sorry touching eleven. Yeah, to to kind of poking it towards twelve on the back of this news. Or maybe maybe that's correlation, but not causation. You could argue, but it's still interesting. <laughs> I, I, yeah. We're buying Bitcoin in times of strife, I, and actually, not generally. I, I think there is a school of thought out there that, that cryptocurrencies could be a safe haven in times of currency war, and that's fine in theory. I, I totally get the theory. You know, the decentralized, you know, no national um, boundaries or whatever. I totally get why you would do that. It's why gold goes up, and gold hit fifteen. What gold hit a six-year? Was it six-year high this week? Above fifteen hundred bucks, so you know it's happening in gold as well. The only question I kind of have, the only problem I have with Bitcoin as a safe haven play, is what happens when you want to get out of your safe haven play? Because if enough people buy into it and they all try and get out at the same time, <clears throat> price action is bad enough as it is. I don't think everyone was rushing into Bitcoin this week, but it still went up fifteen percent. Well, well, you don't get out, then you just buy Libra. Yes. Or buy something else. Yeah, you double you double down, didn't you? It's. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I think the market structure in Bitcoin makes it a very very risky play. If you, you know, which is obviously a paradox, given it's meant to be a safe haven play. I think what you're actually doing is taking on an even bigger risk by buying an asset as a safe haven play. That if the world actually calms down, you're going to be twenty percent lower. That's not that much of a safe haven play to me. I've got to be honest, um, because there's yeah. just not liquidity there. I do have – I haven't had time to read it, unfortunately, but a PDF did land in my inbox today uh, titled Hedging U.S.-China Trade Risk with Bitcoin, a Real-Time Case Study, um, and I can't wait to read it. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, this is interesting that these people are trying to say that, but I think, yes, I, I totally get the theory of it, just to repeat myself, but you can only do it in a few – you know, what, maybe a million Bucks. I mean, how how much can you shift through the Bitcoin market without having uh, you know an outsized impact in terms of fiat currency size? I, I don't know what it is, but it's not going to be enough. It's, for, it's low. Yeah, and, you know, and, and you look at what well, yeah the amount of people buying into sort you know buying yen this week and Swiss is safe haven play. It's you know it's in the billions of dollars as people rush to it, and you think, well, is Bitcoin going to be able? Is is the crypto market going to be able to handle billions of dollars? You know, theory, absolutely, totally get it. In reality, all you're doing is you're sitting there with this sort of Damocles hanging over your head going like, the minute somebody says something positive on, on currency wars or trade wars, you're 20% under on your hedge. It's the kind of thing that, you know, like the target redemption notes that went horribly wrong for all the corporates in Asia in 2008. Yeah, it's fine. There's never, yeah, you, as long as it stays in this range, so the yen, you're absolutely fine. And, oh, all of a sudden it was 5% outside that range and they're paying out hundreds of millions of dollars um, in, in slippage. Good luck with that one. Bitcoin. All I'm saying is, all, all I'm saying is, 
this trade will carry on the way it is. I'm finally going to make my money back on that Bitcoin I bought in late 2017. <laughs> and it's all about the long view, mate. It is all about the long view. <laughs> huddle, baby, <laughs> huddle. Exactly. <laughs> but just keep your average in mind and just make sure you <laughs> kick out $1. $1 above the average is all you need for a profit. You never go. And you know what? Let's end with some words. Let's end with some philosophical words. You never go broke taking a profit. There you go. Trading 101. <laughs> words to live by. Um, yes, exactly. Yes. We are going to take a, a summer break for those of you in the Northern Hemisphere. Gail and I are both off. I'm, I'm surviving yet another brutal Sydney winter. Daytime average temperature 19 degrees. So we're actually going to take two weeks off now. So this podcast will return for the first week in September, I think it will be. So yep. um, have a good couple of weeks. We'll be back then to talk to you then. And thanks and for listening. In the meantime, if you have any questions, queries, or anything you'd like to say, email Colin. Yes. Colin underscore Lambert at profit-loss.com. There you go. All abuse freely welcomed. And actually, yes, yeah, seriously, you've got a question you want us to ask, we'll answer it. You know that. We don't, we don't let lack of knowledge get in the way of an opinion. Thanks very much for listening, everyone.